This afternoon with Mr. Andrew Schwartz, the co-founder and group managing director of Qualitas Group. Andrew, thanks for your time this afternoon. Tell us about your firm Qualitas, started in 2008. What was the impetus to start the firm and what was your background? So my own background is 35 years of investment banking funds management experience. And I uh, was fortunate to work through a period of 1980s, 1990s and, and beyond with uh, large uh, US-based investment banks. Uh, the Australian government formed part of my career. And I always had this uh, dream, ambition to uh, effectively start my own firm. So co-founded the firm Qualitas. In 2008, uh, in the eye of the financial crisis, I had a lot of people around me saying, Andrew, you sure now's the right time for you to really want to start your own firm. And I actually felt there will never be a better time than in the middle of a financial crisis to start an alternative investment firm such as Qualitas. So that, that's really the background to the formation. And tell us about the business what services do you offer your clients and, and who are your clients? Firstly, the only uh, asset class that we really focus on is property. And, you know, we're really not trying to be all things to all people. We're very focused on dealing in uh, select markets and, and select situations. If, if you look at the areas that we operate in today, you can really break them down into four key areas. The first one of those is private credit. The second is opportunistic, uh, special situations, joint venture type situations. The third one is we love the build to rent, the multi-family sector. And the fourth one is uh, we're active in the, in the long whale type area. So whilst we have quite a, a few funds, they all neatly fit within those uh, four areas in particular. We're 50 people and we've got offices in both uh, Melbourne and Sydney. We tend to hang around the major cities in terms of you know, where we actually deploy our capital. It's important to uh, think of us as a capital allocator and we really go to great lengths to explain to our clients that we're not a developer. So we're not there to compete with developers. We see developers as our partners and uh, we're a capital allocation firm to, to our partners. And you've been around financial markets for such a long period of time, you would have seen multiple cycles, including the GFC in 2008, which you touched upon. How do you compare the current economic cycle to that of previous cycles that we've been through? Uh, going back through my career of uh, 35 years, I've been through the 1991 uh, setback uh, 2008 and now 2020 and uh, by far I would say 1991 uh, was so far uh, the worst of uh, the three that uh, I've personally experienced. We're early in this particular uh, downturn of 2020 so I, I want to be careful not to make uh, too many assumptions as to exactly how this will all play out but what I do think reflecting on it is this is a very different downturn to, to those that we've experienced earlier. Ni 1991 in particular was a credit crunch. It was really about foreign banks, you know, over a hundred of them that had 
coming to Australia who decided for their own reasons to withdraw from the Australian marketplace. Uh, the Australian trading banks themselves, questionable position at the particular time. You didn't have a deep superannuation fund industry. You didn't have sovereign funds, hedge funds, capital funds, core funds, distressed funds. And so it was a real uh, credit crunch. And, and I think 2008 was a liquidity crunch. Uh, 2020 is not proving to be a credit or liquidity crunch. It, it's an event-driven shock to the system that is really affecting uh, the property market in, in many different ways. So whilst I think that um, it's a setback that uh, has a long way to play out, I do think it's very different to the other uh, setbacks of uh, the 1991 recession and, and 2008. And there's a lot of doom and gloom around at the moment, particularly when looking at Q1 2021. Do you share that view or are you a little bit more optimistic? For a recession to be a real recession, people have to reach the point of saying, I don't know how we're going to get out of this, right? That the pathway and the exit of the recession is not, is not clear. And, and if you look at the equity markets, there's a lot of talk about the V-shaped recovery in equity markets. Predominantly, that's because people believe that they can see an exit, an exit pathway. You know, we need to be on a very heightened level of alert. And there is a lot to be concerned about, uh, right, right at the very moment in terms of the broader, the broader picture. You know, property is really based upon a game of confidence. And from my observations, uh, the market is lacking in confidence and what you tend to find is that it creates a domino effect amongst the various, the various players. So it, it starts with a story of higher unemployment as a result of the shock to the system and this is a substantial shock and a substantial amount of people that are now unemployed. Uh, you've got a JobKeeper program, a very large amount of fiscal spend, uh, and the government is doing incredible uh, programs uh, to, to bridge people to the other side of COVID. Uh, but you do have high levels of unemployment. Wages growth will obviously be very low. People are going to be very concerned about their jobs. That affects consumption. Uh, people uh, therefore spend less, less retail, uh, less commitment to mortgages, less commitment to buying of property. The economic cycle starts to slow down. We just saw the uh, GDP numbers come out, first negative number for quite a long time. It's, uh, uh, the Treasurer himself saying, you know, we'll be in a, a, a recession, the second recession, sorry, the first recession since uh, 1991, so first recession in 29 years. Economic activity will slow. And so the domino effect has now begun in, in the property market of lower profits, uh, lower amounts of rent that people can pay, lesser demand by uh, those that buy residential property. And so I think we have to be on heightened alert that this does affect property markets and we can't think last cycle anymore. There's an adjustment and a recalibration that has now begun in, in motion. I, I think being balanced in, in respect of the other side of that equation is what comes with that is also very low interest rates for a very long period of time. And as I said earlier, uh, there's a lot of liquidity in the market. This is not 1991, right? Because you've got significant players 
uh, and we're you know, one of those who have you know, large amounts of cash ready to be deployed. And so what comes with that liquidity is uh, an, a, a tightening of cap rates on asset prices because real interest rates are falling. And so I, I think there's the tug of war between potentially lower rates of return in terms of cash flow that you earn on property, but to be balanced by tighter cap rates. And, and it should hopefully provide some level of equilibrium going forward. And then in terms of the recovery, is there a particular timeline that you would be looking at uh, or forecasting for that recovery within property markets to occur? Yeah, in the short term, we're in a very challenged environment for really all, all of the reasons that, that I said. And, and I think that uh, everyone you know, needs to be on somewhat heightened alert in respect of the short term. But, but I do think in the long term, you know, we live in the luckiest country in the world. You know, we're a large island, we're surrounded by vast ocean, we're able to close our borders almost immediately. You, you can see uh, the effects of that coming through in uh, lower cases of COVID. It's more controlled compared to, you know, anywhere else in the world. And so I think that it, Australia will showcase itself to the rest of the world of what a, what a great place it, it, it is, what a safe place. And so you overlay that with uh, fantastic laws and transparent legal system, uh, good, good levels of government. And, and I think that in the longer term, our attractiveness on the, on the global scale uh, only increases. My view is that I think there's going to be four stages to how this recovery plays out. The stage that we're currently in, which uh, actually depends on what state of Australia you, you live in, but in Victoria we're still in a, in a predominantly a lockdown stage. There hasn't been uh, a declaration of an easing of restrictions that allow you to, to go back to work. But the first stage is the stage we're in at the moment. The second stage will be when you can return to work. I think that will start to stimulate economic activity and consumption again when people more freely move, move about. The third stage in my mind is the stage of that there's an effective treatment plan for COVID. And, and I think if that is announced, and is successful, then people will feel safe again to go out. You think about your families and, you know, you'd feel safe to take your wife and children uh, out to restaurants and leisure activities because, you know, worst case is there's an effective treatment plan. And I, and I think finally a vaccine would be the fourth if, if a vaccine is invented, and I like to stay optimistic on these things, but I think that would be you know, the final catalyst for, for a recovery. But, but I think in terms of property, you know, there is a lag effect and things take time. And even if a vaccine was uh, invented and announced and was successful, you know, over uh, the next period of time. I think even post that event, there is a still a rebuilding exercise that needs to take place. So I would be saying 18 months to two years post that event for us to really go back to what is 2019 was all about if we consider that the normal. And looking at this uh, the last two months, this COVID period, if you like, how has you and the team managed to navigate through that difficult environment and have you funded any deals during that period? COVID came out of nowhere for all, all of us, you know, so we all had, you know, very significant momentum in our various businesses at, at the time that it actually occurred. 
And having worked through uh, two major setbacks previously, you know, our, our response plan was firstly, you know, rule number one is let's not lose anybody's money, right? We, we're heavily invested in the market and uh, we have a duty obligation to make sure that all of our investments are safeguarded to the maximum extent possible. So we really prioritise that as a, as a key area for us. Uh, and literally went account by account looking at our various uh, investments across the firm in light of COVID and, and how that may be affecting the position. The second thing we did is we had uh, a number of uh, investments that had been approved by our investment committee at the time but had not yet settled and for good order we now had material information that was new since we met as an investment committee and we uh, had a, a further review of all, all of those particular investments. And the other thing uh, we did is we looked at uh, you know, the various mandates that we had in the marketplace. And interestingly, uh, like all firms similar to ourselves, when COVID hit, we actually had seven mandates in the market at the time. And you know, developers and borrowers being all the good people they are, they, they like to negotiate every last term and condition until you know, they've managed to get the best possible deal that they can get, which is absolutely fine and expected. But literally, they all hit our desk at the time that COVID actually occurred and people just wanted to close on transactions. We did a review of you know, the various uh, mandates that were out there as well. We've funded uh, seven transactions since COVID actually hit we've, and we've undertaken one refinancing. It's shy, just shy of a couple of hundred million dollars. I think the number's $185 million of transactions uh, since COVID actually hit. So, uh, and, and in part, it goes back to the fact that, uh, you know, we're, we're a counter-cyclical business as well. And what are your thoughts on the term dry powder and does Qualitas as a business have any at the moment? So dry powder means as a fund manager, uh, how much committed capital do you have as a firm that is ready for deployment? So it's under your control and subject to your investment committee decision, you could actually deploy it. And as a firm, we are just shy of uh, 500 million across all of our uh, various strategies. And so, um, and so with that 500 million, we also have a further uh, $500 million of expected capital coming back to us as a firm over the next 12 months. So, so all up, you know, it's a, it's a billion dollars of capital and, uh, you know, that's within the Qualitas control and selectively, you know, we'll be looking to deploy it. It does sound like a big number, you know, you sort of go a billion dollars of capital. Uh, you know, for us, it's, it's actually represents a few deals. It's, it's, it's not as much as you might think in that, you know, we're not looking to be all things to all people. So, uh, you know, it's, it's probably not as many deals as, you know, the, the mind imagines when you push the number out there, but we do have a billion dollars of dry powder. And what is the investment appetite for Qualitas as a business at the moment? And, and where, if anywhere, do you see the opportunities for that investment to go? So our investment appetite is, is high and it hasn't diminished at all as a result of uh, the onset of, of COVID. Qualitas plays within those four bands that I, I went through earlier in various strategies, uh, you know, that range from providing core debt, you know, investment loans to a borrower, 
Uh, we, we do a, quite a lot of construction loans outside of the banks. You know, we're one of the largest uh, construction lenders in the country. And all the way through to joint ventures, special situations, and as I said earlier, our, our long whale. And so, you know, I, I can be absolutely objective and agnostic in, re in regards to where we see opportunities. And I'm not in need of needing to push a particular angle because it fits the only product that I've actually got when you think about the wide spectrum of what it is that the Qualitas actually does. And to really properly answer your question, you need to think about what's the strategy behind the question that you're asking. So if your question is, you run a special situation fund, a joint venture, equity fund, are you, do you see significant deal flow and do you have appetite for that strategy at the moment? And the answer is, we are in a fantastic market for that particular strategy right, right at the moment. And, you know, for us, you know, looking at uh, things that intuitively you might say, you know, why would you want to get involved in a particular sector of the market now, given, you know, the various state of the market, for a counter-cyclical special situation investor, these events only come around, well, a pandemic apparently once every 100 years, so hopefully we'll never see another one again, but, but a market downturn is once every 10 years, and you could wait another 10 years to invest into uh, you know, a special situation that might only come along every 10 years. So I, I think that, um, you know, we will continue to see, uh, you know, uh, uh, opportunities into those types of areas and our appetite remains high. You know, I, I think that for us, we're happy to look at um, all opportunities. It's really through the lens of why are we looking at it and what's the expected return and what are the risks that we're taking in that opportunity and do we think we're in the right part of the risk return and the right part of the cycle for the actual investment that we're making. And on the flip side of that, do you see any areas of distress in the market at the moment and, and if so, where? The absolute short answer is no one has walked into the Qualitas office so far and said, I'm in a high level of distress and I need you to resolve a problem in a week. You know, that's, that you know, has not occurred. But I do think the word distress gets thrown around really easily and, you know, people don't really define what it is that they meant by the question itself. And so I, I think about it in three categories. I think about stress, distress, and a market crash, okay? And I would say stress is, and, and I spoke to, you know, a very, uh, close uh, friend and uh, good relationship of the firm the other day who has very significant investment property and very, very low, low debt levels. And they said to me that their rental portfolio was some 40% uh, below what they were collecting last year because they had a lot of hardship tenants in their portfolio. Now, that is an element of stress, right? They're, they're having to really focus more on their, their actual tenants, but I wouldn't describe that as distress, yes. right? Distress is 
and this is not the case with this particular person. Distress is, and I've got 70% gearing, and the bank wants money back, and they want it back in two weeks. Okay, then I would say that's distress, right? And then the third part of this is, is a crash. And so, and a crash is systemic. Everyone's affected by it, and, and it's a wipeout event. And I would say, to the broader question, uh, we're definitely seeing elements of stress, uh, and, and I think everyone is seeing elements of stress at the current point of time. We've not had any uh, isolated incidents of distress so far, and, uh, and I think the crash, uh, you know, in all probability is unlikely because an important ingredient of a market crash is that you don't have any liquidity in the market, that it got sucked out of the system. So what happens is you look at property and you say, well, that's incredibly cheap. And it's cheap because no one can buy it because nobody's got any cash. Well, there's a lot of liquidity. And I think that provides a flaw to asset pricing and probably makes you know, the concept of a crash difficult. So the opportunities in the marketplace that you're seeing at the moment, what are they? If I had to say thematically, where are the themes at the moment that are, that are coming out? It's really in two areas. Are developers approaching us for liquidity? You know, there's nothing wrong per se, but they're nervous about next year and particularly around the first quarter of next year. And so they're feeling two things. One, they want to build cash reserves. They're sitting on a lot of profit that they've earned over, uh, you know, the last couple of years in particular. And they want to look at how do we monetize some of those profits so we can build cash because we don't actually know what's coming. And secondly, if they take a more downside view, then there's going to be amazing opportunities and they want to make sure uh, they're in a position to be able to respond to, to those opportunities. So in very recent times, uh, we're getting a push for what I would call more liquidity lines of credit. The other interesting thing that we're seeing, and mainly because we're uh, you know, one of the larger uh, equity allocators uh, in Australia is uh, developers wanting a more programmatic relationship with Qualitas. So whereas traditionally they would do things on a, what I call a deal-by-deal deal basis, they want to agree a sandbox with us that says, if it looks like this, even though I know you still need to look at everything on a deal-by-deal deal and assess it on its merits, we want to agree the relationship so that programmatically, if there's an incredible opportunity coming our way over the next couple of years, it's all pre-agreed and we can go and execute upon it. I think both of those things are very smart and certainly, uh, you know, we're in with uh, several parties, you know, full flight discussions around both of those. And what are the pitfalls you see in dealing with non-bank lenders? On the positive side, uh, we're flexible. I think that we're timely, we tailor solutions to what our, what our clients actually want. You know, we're able to think out of the box in respect of um, you know, you know, outcomes that, that developers are trying to achieve. And, and a good example of that might be, uh, and we're looking at a few of these at the moment, where it's construction financing. And perhaps, you know, it's hard to get pre-sales in this market at the moment for all the reasons that I said earlier around confidence levels by purchases, but also 
uh, purchasers wanting to see a building actually start before they're going to commit to it and put a put a deposit down. And so, but the building can't start unless you get finance and. Uh, and, and rightly so, the major trading banks have a relatively tight credit box around uh, the amount of pre-sales they require. Now, because we're also in an equity business ourselves and we do nothing else but property and we're, we're deep dive, you know, we're able to look at the project on its fundamentals and say, based on our view of that project, do we think it will be successful? And if the answer to that is yes, then we will consider it on a lower level of pre-sales than perhaps what uh, you know, one of the major trading banks will be. So, so I think it's really about that type of flexibility as a solution that we bring to the table. You know, on the flip side, and this is me trying to be objective, is our pricing's not the same as a trading bank. We don't fund ourselves you know, the, the same way that a trading bank funds themselves. That's a consideration for, for developers in, in terms of you know, dealing with, with groups uh, like ours. I do think that uh, you know, a lot of the developer community, uh, particularly the more seasoned developers, have you know, grown up in an environment where they see money as being relatively homogenous. And so if you go to one of the trading banks, then you basically view all the trading banks the same. Maybe the only point of difference is the actual person you deal with and your relationship and trust in, in the person. But I think that, uh, uh, you know, this is a general statement. It's, it's not about necessarily Qualitas or anybody else. But, but I think in choosing a non-bank lender to deal with, a borrower really needs to go into a mutual due diligence. So just as a lender due diligence as a borrower, I think the reverse needs to occur as well. And there's some really fundamental questions that I think a borrower needs to ask its lender. And some of those questions, when I say them, they'll sound obvious, but uh, you know, rarely do you actually ever get asked these questions. But those questions are, who owns the money that you're actually giving to me as a loan? Who's the owner of it? You know, the second question is who controls the money? If I have a problem with this particular loan, who makes the decision as to forbearance or waivers? Or do you have to go to another group of people to actually seek any changes to various loan conditions? And, and also due diligence, what the sector experience of the party is that you're dealing with. And I, and I think that you know, there's money that's available from a large amount of places. It can be uh, local institutionalised uh, non-bank lenders. It can be private families. It can be offshore lenders that have uh, you know, multiple areas of focus and Australia is, is only but one of them. You know, understanding whether your loan sits in a portfolio of loans or is it a single asset loan that's been syndicated out to private high net worth investors in the background, these are really important questions. Mm. And I guess I'm continually surprised that developers and borrowers don't ask. And, if, and I guess, you know, one of the bits of advice I would say is I think they're good questions for borrowers to, to ask back of their, their lender. In the case of Qualitas, 
We've worked hard to have discretionary capital and we've said no to a lot of capital that has wanted to side with us that uh, you know, was, was not of the form of discretionary capital. Discretionary meaning we make the decisions over the capital. There's no greater party that we have to rush to for them to make the decisions. And so we've spent a lot of time looking for discretionary capital, searching the globe for it. Uh, you know, uh, half to two thirds of our capital uh, actually is raised outside of Australia and is in the form of, of non, uh, sorry, fully discretionary capital to, uh, to Qualitas and it's cost efficient capital as well. So I, I think they're the benefits that, uh, you know, groups like ours can pass on to the clients, but I think equally it's really important that uh, clients, borrowers ask those questions to really make sure they've understood where this money has come from. And what's been your experience with the Qualitas Real Estate Investment Fund as compared with more traditional investment structures? Qualitas uh, doesn't have contributory mortgage funds. You know, where our investment structure really fits into uh, mainly the vast majority of our investments are uh, closed-ended vehicles. So closed-ended meaning people, you have a certain amount of investment period and then you have a maturity period and as and when the loans uh, or the equity investments mature, you pay out those proceeds to the investors pro rata to their participation. And that really summarises uh, the absolute vast majority of our business. You know, we've got one fund that's an open-ended fund uh, where investors can redeem, but the redemptions are relatively limited periods of time. The, the, the listed income fund for us is a fantastic model. It's, it's one that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very uh, wedded to. I, I think that if, if you look at the reason why we established it is we felt that uh, you know, there's a place on the ASX for investors to get monthly and reliable income and with a focus on capital preservation. And how better to do it than do it through mortgages, mm. where you get monthly interest and you've got a mortgage. Mm. And so it delivers on both objectives of income and capital preservation. The, the other reason why I really like it is because where a lot of these models can sometimes become a little bit unstuck is you have a mismatch between your asset and your liability. So your asset is the loan that you made to a borrower and the liability is back to the owner of the money. And so what you're able to, uh, to do through a listed vehicle is the capital is permanent. And so if somebody wants to get out, they want to redeem, they don't need to ask you, the manager, to sell a loan to get their proceeds back, they just sell their shares. And so you've overcome that asset uh, liability mismatch. We have no debt in our vehicle. We are the debt, we provide that to the borrowers. And so it's, it's a through the cycle vehicle. And I think, you know, history is littered with examples of finance firms that didn't make it through the cycle purely because they had asset and liability mismatch. And that's something that thankfully, through our listed vehicle, Qualitas Real Estate Income Fund, that uh, you know, we don't need to contend with and it's a very stable vehicle for that reason. And what asset classes, if any, at the moment, are you and the team avoiding? Now, as, as I said earlier, we, you know, I, I, I'm, we're not really seeking to avoid anything. You know, it's, your, your question is what, I think it might be what asset classes do I think are more challenged at the moment, potentially, is it your question. And, and if that's the question, 
you know, I'd say hotels or, or leisure, education, you know, property where the income is directly affected by the advent of COVID is clearly, you know, areas that is going to be difficult in the short term. But a lot of our strategies are counter-cyclical. And so from our point of view, again, coming back to risk and return pricing, uh, you know, we're, I think we're open to looking at uh, all opportunity. It's, it's, it's for us really a question of, uh, you know, why are we looking at it, as I said earlier, and is it right for the strategy that we're actually looking at? One of the things you mentioned uh, earlier is the build to rent sector. Everyone's got a, a view on it. Some, uh, some are supportive, some are critical of it. What, what's, what's your view on it? Where do you think it's going? So we're, we're really positive on the build to rent sector. and. Uh, again, I, I think in the short term, you, you can understand, you know, the, the, the views that others have expressed around uh, some some of the challenges, which you know I, I won't uh, I won't necessarily go through. But but the reason we really like it is because in the past, what would happen is you'd have commercial cap rates and residential cap rates, and there was a fair gap between them and the market is recalibrating at the moment and it's recalibrating in a way where all of a sudden the darling of the market being office is no longer considered such a darling anymore and and so investors are wising up to really looking at what's the underlying strength of the revenue that is supporting the property itself and what's the cap rate of the property and what you have found is that as interest rates have kept coming down and there's more liquidity pushing into the market, the cap rates across the whole sector have actually reduced. And as they've reduced and residential has held relatively firm, all of a sudden residential cap rates and other cap rates are of relatively equal kill. And, and the net effect is uh, astute investors are able to say that one of the benefits that come out of build to rent is I don't have one tenant as you do in an office type building, I've actually got a multiple multitude of tenants and I've got diversification and I've got risk mitigation in respect of my revenue. And so I think those two points combined start to make it an institutional asset class and as soon as it becomes institutional you have capital that's looking to deploy and really grow into that into that industry and so that's not my way of uh, ignoring the challenges around uh, the cost side of, of this in terms of uh, the uh, some of the tax uh, imposts in respect of uh, Bill Torrent, which you know has been uh, well noted in the media, but but I do think often the revenue side and the security of the revenue gets ignored in this argument, and and the future outlook on cap rates, and that's why I'm a big believer that this asset class will exist. And a lot of your uh, investors, as you said earlier, do come from overseas. When you've been speaking with them, how do they see Australia into the future? Do they see it as a positive uh, destination for investment and capital allocation? just because of the way things have been handled here over the past couple of months and the underlying fundamentals as a country? Uh, hugely. So uh, I do spend a lot of my time overseas with investors, large institutional investors, admittedly not over the last uh, three or four months. Uh, I've been uh, very uh, safe and sound in, in Melbourne. Uh, but what, what you find is that 
Uh, Australia really sits on its own in terms of the competitive landscape for, for capital. So if, if you're in Europe, you've been sitting in an environment of negative interest rates, uh, benign economies, not, not just since COVID, but for the last decade, substantial geopolitical type risks amongst various countries and somebody like me comes along and talks about Australia in terms of uh, growing population, high levels of immigration. You know, our, our immigration in the past and, and immigration is a whole other topic given where COVID is and our borders are closed. Uh, but if you really think about immigration, you know, Australia's immigration is skilled immigration. It's not uh, it's not refugee, migrant immigration in, in, the, in the main. Right? It's skilled. It's people that have come here for, for jobs, they've needed houses, schools, public transport, and they've really stimulated the, the economy overall. So, so Australia's had all these very natural growth drivers overlaid with great legal system, fantastic uh, government that has had uh, policies that have really, you know, further driven economic activity. A wonderful central bank that uh, has has used monetary policy in, in in the right sort of way. So, if you're an investor uh, overseas and you're looking for non-correlated investment risk, then you'll be thinking about Australia because of all the benefits that it offers relative to, you know, other other places of the world. And 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 I do think that. Uh, with the onset of COVID and looking at what's happening in the United States at the moment, which is ab absolutely heartbreaking, and the ongoing geopolitical issues of places like Europe, that Australia just continues to look better and better if you're if you're sitting offshore. So I think that'll continue, and uh, I, you know I'm not personally concerned about the medium term in, in respect of capital flows. If there are developers out there watching this that are tossing up between different sources of, uh, of lending, what do you think is the point of difference that Qualitas offers that perhaps your competitors don't? So I, I, I think that uh, Qualitas prime, I would say we've got two prime advantages. The first of those is we are only property. We're not trying to be all things to all people. And so that gives us a huge competitive advantage because it's an asset class that we understand at the deepest of levels. And the second uh, major advantage for us is our discretionary capital, that you know we are dealing with money that we, we control. And so I think that you know that really gives us the confidence um, to speak for the capital. And if we say we're going to do something then we do it. And that's you know a, you know a very large uh, competitive advantage. Now having said that, I do think it's a wonderful industry in Australia and that certainly is not my way of saying you know necessarily uh, we're, we're better and the other you know the other competitors in the market are less so. Um, that's not that's not my view. I think it's it's a really strong industry in Australia. Uh, you know it's, it's institutionalized with good practices and and protocols and, and I really do want to emphasize that point. Mm. 
One final one, and we spoke about doom and gloom earlier. A lot of people are sick of the media, the mainstream media these days, uh, putting out negative articles about the property market and anything and everything to do with property. Where do you and the team go for trusted sources of information to really assist your decision making? Uh, everywhere. So when we're due diligencing a uh, specific situation, we're, we're really trying to get as much information as we can from as, as many people as we can. Now obviously doing that in a way that protects the privacy of the situation that, that we're dealing with. You know, I've, thankfully I've got a great group of colleagues around me. We're, we tend to hire people who are in their uh, second and third careers and they themselves have very deep sector, sector knowledge. We triangulate information, so you know, we look to try and confirm it in as many different ways as, as we can. We're not a uh, check the box, tick the box outfit. And so, you know, and I'm not saying that's not a formula that doesn't work or is not right for, for others, but it's not our formula. And so for us, we look at a project on its fundamentals. Yes, we go and get a valuation, but the valuation for us might just check the assumptions or our thinking about it. It's not our primary driver of making a decision in a firm like Equalitas. So I, I think it's, it's, it's wide. Uh, you know, I've got a fantastic board around me and uh, you know, they themselves have you know, very deep sector knowledge. And so we're able to really bring in you know, a lot of information from different places to make sure we, we, we land in, in the right spot. Now, you know, thankfully, where uh, you know more than 150 investments into the establishment of Qualitas, and you know I don't say this lightly, but thankfully, you know none of our investors have lost any money in any investment that they've invested with in respect of our firm, which you know means you know, every investment we've done has proved up on the other side. Now that that doesn't mean you can't lose money. It doesn't mean it's not a guarantee that we'll never lose money. We, we're in a risk business, so obviously, uh, you know, what comes with that is the potential to lose money. But we haven't so far, and and that's really because we heavily due diligence a situation that we're involved in, and we make sure that. You know, we can make sense out of it and it, it has to be right for us in every way for us to invest and so, so far it's worked for us pretty well. And finally, what's next for the Qualitas business? Well, I think just stay, you know, COVID's interesting in that I, I think if it's done anything, it's probably narrowed our ambitions, right? Because you, you, can't, you can't be all things to all people. And so our ability to be mobile and, you know, look at expansion of geographic regions or, you know, lots of other things that, you know, could, could be on our agenda. We, we just want to go deeper in what we're doing at the moment and both on our partner relationships, so our developers and joint venture partners just go more with our trusted partners and go deeper with our investors and I think that's a really simple recipe for us for the next little while. Well Andrew Schwartz, thanks so much for your time this afternoon, it's been a pleasure.